is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, Yemen's violent uprising pushes the country to the brink of collapse. It is of the utmost importance that all British nationals leave the country immediately. And a warning to Iran, stop arming the Taliban. Their ability to kill Afghan and ISAF soldiers at some range, Iran knows exactly what it's doing. Hypocritical and two-faced and highly dangerous. Headlines. New evidence suggests Colonel Gaddafi ordered the rape of hundreds of women as a weapon against opposition forces. Arrest warrants for the Libyan leader and his son Saif for crimes against humanity have already been requested. Now the chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Court says a fresh charge of mass rape may be added. The U.S. Defense Secretary says there'll be no hasty U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Robert Gates says to pull out too soon would threaten the advances made against the Taliban. Meanwhile, the bodies of three British servicemen killed in Afghanistan within three days are being repatriated today. The government has dismissed an attack on its policies from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Dr Rowan Williams said the coalition's education, health and welfare reforms caused anxiety and anger, and he said the government lacked a democratic mandate. And the man in charge of the Glastonbury Festival says booking the Wombles for this month's event was a bit of a mistake. Michael Evis says he can't personally control who appears on each of the festival's 25 stages. Yemen's embattled president has finally left the country, though not in the way many had hoped or expected. Ali Abdullah Saleh was apparently gravely wounded in a rocket attack on his compound in Sana'a. He's being treated in Saudi Arabia. And Yemen's vice president is now in control. It's not clear if or when he'll be able to return. But after a long and violent uprising, the US is among the countries telling Saleh to stay out of Yemen, saying it's time for an immediate transition. As the fighting continues, it's been reported up to 80 Royal Marines are on standby off the coast to rescue British nationals. But the Foreign Secretary, William Hague, insists those Britons remaining in Yemen must find their own escape route. Recent events have shown just how quickly the security situation in Yemen can deteriorate into ferocious and unpredictable fighting. It is of the utmost importance that all British nationals leave the country immediately by commercial means while it is still possible to do so, as we have advised them to do since the 12th of March. I warn again that it will be extremely unlikely that the British government will be able to evacuate British nationals from Yemen. Well, Oliver Miles is a former head of the Foreign Office's Near East and North Africa Department, as well as an ex-ambassador to Libya. He's on the line now. Oliver Miles, thanks for your time today. There were celebrations in Yemen when the news of Salah's departure broke through, um, but the fighting has continued. Are we any closer to a resolution? No, not really. I'm afraid we aren't. Uh, possibly in one respect. The, the trouble with Yemen is that it's a, a country with a number of different problems, which all uh, crisscross. Uh, one of the problems has been a tribal dispute between the president and, and some of people of a, of a different tribe, uh, and that possibly may be, may be alleviated by his departure. And then there's also the, the um, Arab Spring, if you like, the, the movement for democracy, the movement for more freedom, which we've seen in so many Arab countries and which is also present in Yemen. But we're nowhere near a solution to, to that problem, and also there are other problems as well. I'm afraid it's, uh, it's 
going to be very difficult to see Yemen settling down in the near future. The U.S. says uh, Saleh should not return, but his vice president is insisting he's only in temporary charge. Uh, What do you think will happen long term? Long term, I'm afraid we're in for a a lot of very difficult problems. The, the, The Yemen has has a real difficulty that it lacks resources. It lack, lacks natural resources. Uh, it's got quite a large population. Um, people forget that it's, there are, I think, something like 18 million people there now. Um, it's a, a very poor country in almost every respect. And it's, it's never had a, a strong or settled government. Uh, it's uh, got uh, very... Uh, strong tribal divisions, which aren't necessarily going to lead to bloodshed, but they do from time to time. So I, I think it's going to be very unsettled. Well, also with me is BFBS's defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, before this uprising, we were told Yemen was at risk of becoming a failed state and a strong base where al-Qaeda sympathisers. Does the West have a plan to stop that happening? Well, I think it's happened. That's, that is one of the problems. Um, to what extent? Well, um, uh, President Salah has been in power if we can call it that now, for 33, 34 years. And one of the attractions, for example, to the Saudi Arabians of, of, of his regime, he's managed to hold together different factions. He's managed to say, what do you want? OK, you've got it or whatever. And then what happened is that al-Qaeda set up in one part of the country. And this is the thing that's variously called al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and very important people there. The Americans have got targets there that they'd wish to deal with. So al-Qaeda is, is there as part of the problem. But as Oliver Miles says, this is a pawn state. And, his, uh, uh, and the president, uh, his, his distinction is the fact that he's managed, in spite of everything, to hold together 18, 20 million people with disparate families, in, including the al-Hama f- uh, families, which we really ought to watch for and see which way they jump. Um, Oliver Miles, uh, William Hague says it'll be very hard to rescue remaining Britons in Yemen. Apparently there are 80 Royal Marines, if that's so, on standby. How hard would a rescue mission be? Could it happen? Well, I, I think the, you've got to think, first of all, who are these British nationals who are in Yemen? I think there are probably two main types. Some of them are um, uh, foreigners, so to speak. They are, they are British people who are there either as businessmen or possibly in some cases um, medical and, and other welfare people. I don't know whether there are any missionaries, medical missionaries left in Yemen now. And these are people who are very tough. Uh, they, know that they know they're Yemen. They're not new to Yemen. They've stayed there throughout a long period when the British government has been advising people to leave because they, they have their own reasons for leaving. And they won't leave in a hurry, of course. In the last resort, they may be forced to leave. Then there's another category of people altogether. You have to remember that that, uh, Aden in particular has had more than 100 years of very close relationship with with Britain. As a result, there's a large Yemeni uh, Yemeni community in Britain, particularly in Cardiff. Uh, There are a lot of mixed families. And when I say mixed, I don't necessarily mean racially mixed. They may be people who uh, who are all what you might call Yemenis, at bottom, but some of them have British documents, some of them don't. And evacuating people like that is rather unlikely because uh, that would mean breaking up families and so on. Probably they have no intention of leaving whatsoever. So I think any count of British people in Yemen would be quite a complicated affair. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. Uh, Meanwhile, in Libya, Colonel Gaddafi's now been accused of ordering the rape of hundreds of women as a weapon of war. NATO carried out one of the biggest daytime bombing raids since the start of the campaign this week, but Libya's leader remains defiant. 
We have only one choice, which is to stay in Libya and either live or die. We will not surrender. You, NATO, have to leave, not us. But former Prime Minister Tony Blair says there's clear evidence the bombing is having an impact. The plan, I think, is to continue to do what we're doing, which is to weaken the regime by military action, to get this over with as quickly as possible, and then to get in place a whole change for the country so that they can elect their government, so that this spread of democracy across the region is, is properly anchored there. But it's going to be tough. For the first time, Apache attack helicopters have struck targets in Libya, a move seen as a significant escalation of the campaign against the Libyan leadership. On the line is Alan Whittle, formerly the UK's senior flying instructor on Apache. Alan, thanks for your time today. Are the Apaches making much difference in Libya? Well, I think they will, actually, because it, it, it adds a, an essential tool um, to, to the, the arsenal that the, the, the military is able to call upon. In the past, um, over the past couple of months, they've been able to call upon uh, tornadoes and, and, uh, and uh, well, in fact, the whole of the coalition, basically, but certainly from, uh, from the UK's perspective, tornadoes and typhoons who've been doing an exceptionally um, good job. What the Apache brings to the party is, is, is basically the, the, the option to be able to use maybe slightly more um, targeted weapons, which are more... Uh, calculated to hit, you know, sort of uh, point targets and therefore reducing collateral damage, which really from a hearts and minds perspective uh, and a strategic um, perspective has got to help the UK effort. And yet they came under fire on those first missions. Uh, They are more vulnerable, aren't they? Well, it is susceptible to small arms, as in any, any helicopter. It flies exceptionally low or it can fly at medium levels but it's always going to be in the range of, of small arms. That's been the case in Afghanistan for a number of years now. Uh, having said that, the aircraft has rarely been hit, considering the number of missions it's flown. But even then, it's able to, uh, even when it's hit, it's able to survive exceptionally well. I mean, the crew sit on armoured seats, um, and in fact, they actually use things like the fuel tanks to provide ballistic protection. So in effect, they're sitting on the fuel, which has nitrogen pumped into them to prevent any kind of explosion. And then once pierced, the fuel tanks are made from a special kind of rubber that reacts with the leaking fuel that causes it to swell and then reseals the tanks. Um, all of the the, um, the essential components from the weapons processors to, to the you know all the rest of the computers that make the Apache work uh, are exceptionally well armoured. So yes, albeit they may well be hit, um, then actually it shouldn't do that much damage to the aircraft. What and advice would you offer NATO on how best to use the Apaches? Are they doing the best thing at the moment? Um, yes, well, yes, they are. I mean, they, they, I think they're using them um, in concert with uh, with French attack helicopters, with the Tiger. Uh, and clearly they're, they're, they're sort of employed in, in, in um, certain roles which will, will be spoke to, to certain nations because there are certain things that the Apache can do an awful lot better um, than the Tiger. And for the numbers that we have deployed... Like, like what exactly? Well, the, what the, the Apache is exceptionally good at um, is actually finding targets. It's got a fantastic um, suite of sensors on board from a, you know, the fire control radars. Um, to cameras that can uh, zoom in up to one, uh, well, in fact, just short of 130 times, plus infrared cameras that can detect targets at night. Um, and using its, its weapon system, uh, which means that it can basically fire its hellfires from out to a range of about eight kilometers, both high and low level. Uh, and at that range, because the missiles fly at sort of 1.4, Mach 1.4 as it, as it leaves the aircraft, it's still doing Mach 1.3 as it hits the target. So you can't really hear the Apache from a, a range of about eight kilometers. You can't see it. Uh, and you certainly won't hear any of the missiles coming in. So, um, and when it wants to go even closer to, say, use its 30-millimeter cannon, it's still firing those, those, um, those rounds from way over um, three kilometers. So that, that they are 
that, that they're able to be, providing that they're put into an area where known targets are available, then they will be exceptionally um, suitable for the task. Uh, do you think we need more over Libya? You sound like you're making a good argument for it. Um, do we do we need more? Well, it really depends, and this is one of the things, of course, I'm not really privy to, but it depends on the target set that we're going for. I mean, the, the, um, they'll have suitable numbers on HMS Ocean at the moment. Um, the, uh, the aircraft is exceptionally um, serviceable. Um, it's a little bit like a home computer once you get the thing going. Um, providing all those computers talk to each other when you press the start button, then it keeps going all day long. Um, it's easy to turn the aircraft around. And working in concert with the, um, the, uh, the other UK and coalition forces that we have over there, bearing in mind that it's not a standalone um, uh, piece of equipment, it's working in the third dimension with uh, fast jets. Uh, it's able to transfer mm -hmm. targets to them and from them. Um, I think it's just basically adding a little bit more to the uh, to the overall effort as opposed to being the be-all and end-all of what the British can do over there. All right, Alan Whittle, thanks very much for your time today. Well, Libya was on the agenda for the first day of talks between NATO defence ministers in Brussels and the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, was insistent Britain will not walk away, even though he's putting more pressure on other countries to pull their weight. We have a responsibility to see through the, the UN Security Council resolution that we signed up to. We've seen countries like Sweden now extending what they're in fact doing uh, in, in Libya. We've seen in recent days a big increase in the number of NATO uh, ground attack missions being undertaken. We've seen um, those being uh, carried out by the United States and Britain and France and Italy uh, and others. So there is a great deal of effort. But what we've been trying to say today is that there are other countries who have assets which we could be using, not necessarily ground attack, but in support, in reconnaissance, in air-to-air -air refuelling and so on. Uh, and they should be thinking again about that. Too many are doing too little. Because some people will not live up to their responsibility doesn't mean that we should abdicate ours. Uh, and that, that, I think, is, is very important in terms of Britain standing abroad. And we have to remember that what we have done in, in Libya is something which I think history will look back uh, very favourably on us for. Well, Oliver Miles and Christopher Lee are both still with me. Uh, Christopher, Robert Gates has echoed some of those sentiments made by the Defence Secretary, the US Defence Secretary, that is, uh, about more help from other European countries, hasn't he? Yeah, on Wednesday there was a closed session of these ministers. And they're defence ministers, remember, so they're really sort of thinking hardware. They're not thinking politi big political decisions. That's for the foreign ministers. Um, and uh, Robert Gates, the uh, American Defence Secretary, says, right, the Dutch, the Spanish, the Turkish, the Germans and the Poles ought to be doing far more. So he fingered five of them, yeah. Uh, Could they? Well, this is the interesting part of it. It's, it, it doesn't mean, as, uh, as Liam Fox was saying, that you go... You go in close air support or, or ground attacks, maybe a bit of refueling. A lot of these countries actually don't have the resources that's needed for an operation like this. There's another side of it. For example, the Dutch. The Dutch are very, very much tied up in what's been going on in Afghanistan. I know they're coming out, but they have been. So have been the Germans. And so they've got limited resources Limited resources, some countries, limited resources actually getting their own people uh, uh, moving around. So I think that both Liam Fox and, and, and uh, Robert Gates were laying on the line, look, we want more out of everybody, but they knew jolly well that not everybody can do what they would like them to do.
Oliver Miles, uh, has this NATO meeting really made it much progress on its strategy in Lib- Libya, both for now and uh, a post-Gaddafi scenario? Not that, not that I'm aware of, no. <clears throat> I mean, I'd add to what uh, just been said about the, the military side, that, of course, a number of these governments, Germany in particular, but some of the others too, didn't actually agree with, with what we did in Libya and don't agree with it now. So the idea that they're suddenly going to rally around and, and send lots of uh, hardware and troops and so on is, is fanciful. Fortunately, I don't think it makes all that much difference because uh, although I'm impressed by what we've heard about the Apache and I think that it is true that, it's, that it will add an extra limb, if you like, to the, to the, uh, the, the attack on, on Gaddafi's uh, resources and assets and so on, this, this, this conflict is not going to be resolved by military means. It's going to be resolved by political means. Uh, uh, let's move on to Syria for a moment. Christopher, Britain and France have drawn up a UN resolution condemning the violence there. That's how it started in Libya. How do you see the situation unravelling? Uh, as, uh, as soon as that goes to uh, the United Nations, the Russians will either veto or abstain, and they're going to do that. And that will that'll cause... That'll be the big difference. Non- that'll, be the, but that'll, that'll be the major difference. All right, thanks. Sit rep with Still to come this week, NATO and Russian forces side by side, despite their differences. We are much more ready to any events the world evolved. It is different both from political and from technical point of view. Amid all the instability in the Middle East, there have been fresh questions this week over Iran. Specifically, new claims it's been helping the Taliban in Afghanistan. The British government's increasingly concerned about Iran's support for insurgent groups. It's made a formal complaint to the UN Security Council. Alan Yuri of BBC Radio's File on Four programme has been investigating. You may remember in February this year, there was an operation conducted, it's understood by British special forces, that seized a significant number of high-powered rockets in Nimroz province, which borders Iran. Now, these rockets were being transported to the Taliban. They're the most powerful such weapons with the longest range to be captured so far. The British say technical analysis and intelligence gathering demonstrates that these weapons were manufactured in Iran and supplied by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, a powerful branch of its military. So the government has made a formal complaint to the United Nations Security Council about the matter, and in that complaint, a copy of which we've obtained, the British Chargé d'Affaires makes it clear to the UN that it's part of an ongoing working relationship between the Revolutionary Guards and Taliban facilitators to provide materials for insurgency. The Minister with Responsibility for Afghanistan and also for Counterterrorism, Alistair Burt, took off the diplomatic gloves when discussing the rocket seizure. Their ability to kill Afghan and ISAF soldiers at some range, that is a step up from what we've seen before. We are very concerned that it's so blatant. And despite all the international pressure on Iran, the the, the fact that sanctions are there, that Iran knows exactly what it's doing, on the one hand it claims to want to come back into the international community, the international community doesn't understand it, and then in the next minute they're doing something that it knows is contrary to what the international community have decided. So hypocritical and two-faced and highly dangerous. Foreign Office Minister Alistair Burt. Uh, Oliver Miles, we just heard those very strong words from the Foreign Office Minister. Hypocritical and highly dangerous. Uh, What can Britain actually do about its suspicions, though? Not very much, I think. Uh, We can complain, of course. We can complain to the Iranians. We can complain publicly. But we don't have very much leverage. Um, Mind you... uh, So this complaint to the UN Security Council is pretty pointless, is it? 
Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's pointless, but it's not going to stop what's happening if, if, if it is going on in the way that, that uh, has been described. Um, that's not going to stop it. Um, there isn't a deep alliance between uh, Iran and, and the Taliban. Don't let's forget that they're not natural allies. They're on opposite sides of the, of the Sunni-Shia divide, and um, uh, it, there will be people in Iran who will not be happy about uh, arming the Taliban. But um, for the moment, it doesn't altogether surprise me that the anti-imperialist drive uh, has the better of, of, of the other motivations that there may be in Iran. No, there's not much we can do about it. Uh, Christopher, on the situation on the ground in Afghanistan, U.S. officials say Hamid Karzai's asked President Obama not to order a significant troop withdrawal this year. Do you think he'll listen? Do you think? Uh, well, let's see what, what we mean by... What were you going by, to say? Uh, OK. Well, actually, I was going to say something which Oliver Miles was too polite to say, and that's hypocritical and highly dangerous is standard foreign office in the standard foreign office lexicon when dealing with Iran. But, Especially when you can't think of anything else to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no... It's good, sorry. Uh, we talk about withdrawal as if it's some fanciful thing that you say, right, all the troops out 2014, 2015, or whatever. America's got an election coming up. Uh, Obama said, yes, I want to go. Uh, Mr. Cameron's saying, yes, we've got to come back. We have to say what troops? The shooters, the so-called uh, combat uh, forces, they have to withdraw at a certain way, and you can't just withdraw them. Uh, you leave behind, in theory, you leave behind training teams, you have to have what's called force protection. You've got to have somebody who can actually maintain the security sufficiently to be able to carry on that I, I had the argument this week that the sharpshooters should be the last to leave. Uh, the sharpshooters probably, once they've, once they've done their job, they can go when they like. Um, but I think, I think the important thing is that we can get too caught up with this idea of what you withdraw. Uh, Mr Cameron says 450 are coming out. Yes, well, they were the 450 that were going in for a short time anyway. The Americans put in 30,000 for a surge. If the American uh, generals, um, 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 General Petraeus is about to report uh, next week to uh, uh, President Obama, if he says, yes, those guys can start to come down and withdraw slowly with the force protection so they can do it, then the president will do it his own way, especially what? 17 months to go before an election. Gentlemen, stay with us. Could our reserve forces be one of the winners in the shake-up of Britain's defences? Reports this week suggest a six-month review of the reserves will recommend expansion, with reservists expected to play a bigger role in future operations. That would go against earlier reports that the MOD was considering substantial cuts in the TA. One man who's seen both sides of this issue is Captain Doug Beatty, who, after leaving the regular army, returned to Helmand as a reservist. He's on the line now from Belfast. Captain Doug Beatty, thanks for your time today. After 27 years in the military, what made you decide to join the reserves? I think there was a, there was a place for me in the reserves. I think there was a, there was a job and there was a role. Uh, there was a need for people like me with the experience that I've got um, to go into the reserve forces uh, and, and have called upon to redeploy to places like Afghanistan if needed. Uh, and that was the case last year and, and, and earlier this year. Um, and there is a place now even today for, for ex-soldiers who have done their time to go into reserve forces to, to, to bolster their numbers. Was there any difference being in Afghanistan as a reserve compared to uh, tours in the regular army? Uh, do you know what? Absolutely none. I, I've worked with the TA when I was a regular soldier on many, many occasions. Um, they're slightly different, the build-up and the training before you deploy, um, which, is, which is different. I've got to say well-financed and well-resourced. Um, uh, but once you deploy and, and, and you're accepted into your unit or your brigade, in our case it was 16 or assault brigade, there's absolutely 
absolutely no difference whatsoever. You blend in and melt in with the rest of the soldiers and you're treated in exactly the same way. So what do you think of this idea of expanding the reserves? I presume you're, you're very much for it. Well, do you know what? It's all about balancing our armed forces. If we're going to reduce, and we'll talk about the army, if we're going to reduce the army to 93,000, then we need to have something to call upon if we have to project force elsewhere. Uh, And the simplest way of doing that is increase the number uh, of territorial army soldiers. Now, there is talk that they may want to reduce the army down to 75,000, make them more specialist, better trained, better equipped, uh, in which case the the TA would have a fundamental part uh, to be able to bolster that if if, if the need would ever arise. In America, the ratio of reserves is, to regulars is 50-50. Do you think we should go that far even? Um, it, it's, it's certainly an option. I mean, the, uh, the TA do bring a unique um, flavour to our armed forces and they do hold an awful lot of skills um, which, which can be used in conflicts around the world or even being used um, at home uh, if the need arises, such as a farming strike or something, something in that, of that vein. So, so I think it's certainly a, a way or an option to look at. I think the bottom line is we have to look at what we're going to be doing as an armed force uh, in the next 10, 15, 20 years and ensure we have the capabilities to meet whatever comes up. Is it, is it possible to keep those capabilities with an increased reservist force and in the process save money? Uh, well, I think so. I think the uniqueness about the reserve is exactly that. He's a reserve, he's on standby. Uh, we train them and then when it's time that we need them to be, de- to be deployed, uh, we up their training with extra money and resources uh, and then we're able to deploy them anywhere around the world. And they do slip in beside their regular counterpart in exactly the same way as a regular soldier would. So uh, I think you do have that that um, uh, that availability of, of TA soldiers to be able to do that. And what about the argument it really is just a cheaper way of filling the gap? Uh, do you know what, come on, we're in really difficult economic times. We have had to make cuts in the armed forces, but we want to be able to maintain our capabilities around the world. Um, if that's an option and we can meet the, our, our capabilities um, uh, and meet the threats around the world, then it's got to be something that's looked at. All right, Captain Doug Beatty, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Christopher, um, at the moment, 85% of the forces, we're told, are full-time, 15% are reservists. Many other countries, the ratio 60-40. Uh, do you think there is room for expansion? There is room for expansion in the Army, the TA especially. They can do it. Not but the not- Navy, not the Royal Air Force. Louise. It's, it's a far more technically brained organisation. And so you can be so out of date. So boots on the ground is a bit more easy well, to you, do, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, because you can be out of date. And the other thing to remember is somebody's got to pay for it. So it'll come out from the defence budget. The Treasury's not going to find the extra money for it uh, uh, at all. And, and also the employers. The employers have got to be brought into this. At one time, they used to say, right, we send you a guy on Friday night. We get him back as a better manager on Monday morning. Now it's a big thing. It's six months off to Afghanistan. It disrupts careers. It disrupts, uh, disrupt, disrupt, uh, disrupts the way a company is run. And so very, very, very much the employers have to be brought into this whole equation. And how far you can expend it, uh, it depends partly, partly on them. This week's seen two major exercises involving both NATO and Russian forces. Off Spain's southeast coast, exercise Bold Monarchs saw 2,000 experts from more than 20 countries practising the recovery of submarines stranded at sea. An American rescue team docked with the Russian sub Al Rosa almost 500 feet below the surface. The exercise comes 11 years after the Kursk disaster, when 118 Russian sailors were lost at the bottom of the Barents Sea. Russian naval captain Georgi Shelast says a lot has changed since then. We are much more ready to any events that may take place in sea. Well, uh, 11 years passed since that incident. The world evolved 
it is different both from political and from technical point of view. That was uh, a political decision for Russian submarine to take part in this exercise. And the participation of Russian submarine is just a demonstration of changing relations. Meanwhile, Russian and NATO forces also cooperated in counter-terror exercises aimed at preventing a repeat of the 9-11 attacks. Oliver Miles is still with me, as is Christopher Lee. Oliver, relations between Britain and Russia have been difficult since the death of Alexander Litvinenko five years ago. So this kind of cooperation must be a bit of a breakthrough. No, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, as far as I have been able to discover, this cooperation has been going on steadily <clears throat> for the last 20 years, as a matter of fact, or a bit more. It started in the last days of the Soviet Union. Every year we have these joint exercises. I was reading um, a rather amusing account by a naval officer who took part in one five years ago, in 2004. That was the year, I think, that Litvinenko was murdered. Um, she uh, seems to have spent most of her time being chatted up by the captain and the senior officers, but I'm sure some of them <laughs> find other things to do while they're, um, while they're taking part. No, this goes on all the time. Uh, one, you can't deal with, a, with a, a great power like Russia on the basis that a row over one particular, particularly difficult incident means that everything else goes on hold. After all, earlier in the programme, we were hearing about the possibly decisive role Russia may play over, over intervention in Syria, if only by, by a veto. Um, the Russians have just... Uh, taken our side, so to speak, over the Libyan affair, demanding that Gaddafi should leave. Um, There's a lot to talk to Russia about, and we shouldn't stop. All right, Oliver Miles, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, a lot to talk about with Russia. David Cameron is due to visit Moscow in the autumn. What do you think they will be talking about? Uh, Very much on this Russian uh, cooperation, trade, Russian cooperation in trade. Uh, Russia, don't forget, is what the second, third biggest oil producer in the world. It has it has more gas than anybody uh, in the world. It's got one of the biggest diamond uh, production teams in the world. So these are the things they'll be they'll they'll be talking about, as well as, for example, the Russian NATO Council, and that's particularly important at the moment. All right, Christopher, thank you very much. And thanks to all our guests this week. Next week, I'm taking British Forces News to Germany for a special series of programmes. You can see those each weeknight on BFS1 at 18.30 CET. That's Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Matt Teal will be here in the chat next week for SITREP. But for now, from me, Kate Gerbo, thanks very much for listening. This is Sit Rap on BFBS.